Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to the Word. Ezra chapter 2. Chapter 2 is we talk about pursuing God in the study of Ezra's record. And today I want us to look at greater faithfulness for new glory. Greater faithfulness for new glory. Let me ask you a question. Do you get tired of my questions? Good. I'm glad you don't. Are you a list maker? Are you a list maker? You probably have. If you're anything like me, you've got a list everywhere. And some of them, you find them years later and go, oh yeah, that was a really important list. Right? I should have done a search, but I didn't because it would have totally distracted my ADHD in preparation. I should have done a search for how many apps are available today for the different number of lists and the ways that we can make them. I'm never, I never cease to be amazed at the number of email invites I get that goes, you know, you've used this product for a long time but it's really been insufficient. This is the new app that you need now, right? I mean, it's like you need to make a new list in a new way for a new reason and a new purpose. Some of you have post-it notes stuck all over your office desk and computer and and you you write it down and you stick it there and you go, oh, I'll just do it now and you throw that post-it note away, right? And then some of those post-it notes, you wrote them and you stuck them there about four years ago and there they still sit either on your mirror on the side of your computer screen and you're going, you know that one right there that's really important that's really important we're going to get to that one of these days right well today we're going to look at a list lists are important for a lot of reasons and today the list that we're going to look at is probably far more important than most people would recognize or have even thought about as a matter of fact this is kind of one of those passages of scripture that a lot of people go oh wow who is that I'm just going to kind of move beyond that right I'm going to read the whole second chapter of Ezra today, except for we're going to read it kind of at the highlights. I'm going to give you the trajectory of the chapter without causing you to have to endure my higher cultured South Arkansas vernacular of pronouncing all of the biblical names, okay? You can thank me for that one later. Let's go to Ezra chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 1, and I want to walk through the chapter as I capture, hopefully, the highlights for our purposes today. Verse 1 begins. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then he begins to list names of the heads of families and the number of people that were in those families. But once he finishes that, he does something interesting. He moves to groups. So look at verse 36. In verse 36, he identifies the priests, gives some names of heads of houses and the numbers. And then verse 40, the Levites. Verse 43, the temple servants. Verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. And then in verse 58, he says, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Verse 59, The following were those who came up, and he gives them again lists of names of the heads of houses, and he says this about them. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. Verse 62, 
These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. But they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And then verse 64 says, The whole assembly together was 42,360. Verse 68 through 70 He concludes, some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. And such we have this list that Ezra records at the beginning of his record. It includes Israelites, some who could prove their lineage, and some, it says, who could not. So there was no direct connection to the genealogical record that had been kept. So if one list is not enough, it ought to be a list that points you to another list who gives you another list, right? That's what it's talking about here. And then it identifies some groups who have responsibility for the whole group. So when it talks about the priests and the Levites and the sons of Solomon and the assistants to the sons of Solomon and so forth and so on. It's talking about different aspects of their religious life. Because remember, don't forget this, the whole reason that God is taking them back to Jerusalem and Judah is for worship. That's why God is calling them. That's what God is doing in their midst, is leading them back. And so this list is a record of the first wave of exiles who returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. There are three phases of the return that we see through the years. The first one is is led by Zerubbabel. The second one is led by Ezra. And the third is led by Nehemiah. Now Ezra is the one who's made the record that we're following And he's engaged in this because he has a very specific purpose that's distinct even from Zerubbabel and even from Nehemiah. Ezra is the spiritual leader of the people in the return of the exiles. And continually he'll point them back to the word of God. He'll be the one that reads the word of God for them and leads them in their worship. But why do we have such a list? Well, scholars really don't agree, surprise of all surprises, right, on the exact reason for or purpose of this list. But there are three things that we discern from the list that are important for our study of it. First of all, the Israelites were committed to accurate records of God's people. Why is this? Well, the purity of Israel. They were the people of God. Maintaining an accurate record for the purity of Israel, it was as important to them in that day as a faithful gospel doctrine is that identifies who is and what is not a Christian in our day because this was the new identity that God had given them when he called Abraham in Genesis 12 and he made from Abraham a nation of people. This is who they were. They they had their identity because of what God had done through Abraham. And so being pure to that commitment and to that list was important. It's important to understand who they were because there was a heritage as a nation. That land was the promised land that God had given them when they came out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and came into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. So this was the inheritance given to them. You've got to know who it is. Or next time someone shows up at your house and goes, hey, this is mine. If you don't have a list that says, no, it's actually not, that's the kind of things they were facing. 
And then thirdly, to recognize God's blessing. Look, who we are and what has happened through us is not just because of us. But we're a people who have God's hand upon us. And so they needed to be able to recognize one another and to recognize the group for these reasons. Now there's a second reason this list is important. And it's really a practical recognition of God's call on their nation. We're not a people as Israelites who just live for our own. But we're a people who live for the one who called us to himself, God. And so as a whole nation, they were a people identified by God for the purposes of God. We see that throughout the Old Testament. And then thirdly, as we saw pointed out in the lists of names and groups, the qualification for religious leadership among the Israelites was held to a high standard. It wasn't just free for all, whosoever will can lead and do whatever they want. No, but rather spiritual leadership carried a distinctive qualification among the people. And that's why they had to be able to prove their genealogy because they had to be in the lineage of the priest or the lineage of Levi in order to serve because that was the tribe that God had established would be the religious leaders for the people of Israel. And so it wasn't just a whatever goes can go. There was a demand in the community of faith for qualified leadership. And we can see even in that trajectory when we get to the New Testament, the, the foundation upon which Paul builds his qualification for New Testament pastors today. That's important. It's a foundation for us. So finally, whatever ultimately the list purpose may be, here's what we do see, that this list identifies the first people who trusted God to follow him in their return to the Lord, who were showing faith in his promises and specifically the promise of God on the land that he had given to them and their return. So this chapter is an important historical record for us. It's an important religious record for us to understand what God is doing with his people. And if I can, I'll just make the application, and I can, don't worry about that. I'll just make the application for us today of the importance of records. Sometimes we think keeping records just really aren't that important. But my argument to you today is records are as important for us today to identify who it is that's on mission with us as they've ever been. We keep them for some different purposes and ways, but they're still important for us. We need to know who's committed to the Lord, who's committed to his work, and who's committed to one another for that work. And so we keep what you heard Pastor Jonathan reference earlier, covenant membership. It's not just a list that has no purpose, but rather it's an identification of who you've willingly identified with because of your identification with Christ of who God is raising up among you to serve as leaders and to serve among you. And so I make my appeal to you that covenant membership in the local church, while it is one of the most neglected and just deniable and pushed aside doctrines of our day, it's far more important than just the record of a list. I would argue if you're going to join a church, if you're going to participate actively in a church, You should, both of those. But if you're going to, you you need to understand more about what they're going to teach you about their membership than even how it feels in their worship gathering. Because what really matters is not how good we are on our best days in here or how bad we're not on our worst days, right? Well, what's what's the baseline level they produce, right? 
What really matters is what are we going to teach? What do we believe? And what's going to come out if we get squeezed? Because if you wait till times get hard, the great propensity is that it will be too late. Or you will already have given yourself to something that you shouldn't be following with your life. You need to know what we believe. And my argument is, you can trust us, but not because of us, because our aim is him who died for us. All right, off my soapbox, my advertisement commercial for covenant membership is over. Ezra 2 records those who were first to respond to pursue God in greater faithfulness for new glory. Don't miss this significant step of faith that every person was taking. And I've pointed this out every week so far in the series. You see, sometimes following God can be the smallest step that demands the greatest strength. And then at other times, following God can appear to be the greatest leap that seems completely impossible. Completely, I don't know that this could ever be possible. But in all of these, what you will find is God always proves himself able because he is faithful and true. Second Corinthians chapter 9 verses 8 and 9 reminds us of this when it begins and God is able. Now that's four words you can take it and you can crunch on it and you won't ever finish it but you will always enjoy it. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times having all that you need you will abound in every good work. You see, God is abounding in his blessing to his people that we might abound in the serving for his glory in his name. And that's what we're learning about him following or about him calling his people to pursue him. You know, in all of this, you could say, oh my goodness, there's just so much here that could, that could thwart the people. I mean, they got carried into exile out of discipline from God, and now he's calling them back. Is God a confusing God? Is he a God that just quickly changes his mind? Isn't this too hard? I mean, they've finally gotten some semblance of life established here. A lot that they're going to face here has changed since they've left, and if they go back, it's only going to be hard. I mean, you can only imagine the number of items that Ezra could have recorded in this chapter. But listen to what one scholar tells us about the whole of the chapter. The chapter is dominated in the end by a sense of excitement at the opportunity that God places before them. An opportunity which exists because God's mercies are new every morning. And friends, that's what I want to call us to today. When God calls you, when God commands of you, when you're reading his word and you read a command that you may not understand or you, you come to find you don't even, you're not even sure you agree with, when that occurs, what dominates in you? Is it all the things that could go wrong or might be wrong about this or how God's not really serious? It's just nine suggestions and only one commandment instead of ten commandments. You know what I mean? When all of these little things that roll around in our head and heart rise... What's dominating in you? Is it faith to believe and pursue? Or is it something other? Here's what I want you to walk away with today. God calls people to follow him by faith. That we might see his faithfulness in new ways for new glory. I had a man in his 80s stop me after the last service and he said this to me. 
He said, I've served the Lord a long, long time in my life. And I find this. It's still true every day. God calls me to trust him for today, even when I don't know it. And so I ask you, friends, do you want to see new glory from God? You want tomorrow with God to be better than today? Not comparatively, but I would argue experientially. Do you you want to see more intimacy with God and your understanding of Him and and what you know to be true of Him and and bringing the reality of the glory of God into the here and now of your life? I can tell you new glory from God awaits just beyond His calling and just after you've experienced His faithfulness. So whether you think it's a simple step or a giant leap, faith will always be demanded in any situation And when that occurs, your faith will be confronted by challenges. What I want us to look at this morning and the remainder of our time are four challenges that will always confront your faith in pursuing God, but that through them you'll be able to learn God's greater faithfulness for new glory. Challenge number one, I begin with obedience to God. Maybe this is new to you or maybe you've heard it many times, but God always expects his people to obey his commands. You know, there's not one command that God's ever given that he said, this is optional, do with as you choose. No, God expects his people to obey his commands. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 2, he gives us a promise. He says, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. What will add to you? His commands When we follow by faith to obey. Now you may ask, how is it that obedience can challenge our faith? If if our obedience is by faith, how can it challenge our faith? Well, anything that demands faith to obey is an automatic challenge. Because faith by its very nature determines it's something beyond you. It's something beyond your ability, your understanding, or any of that. It's the very nature of faith that challenges us. And obeying God's commands and following his call both require daily faith. Obedience challenges our faith when that is so often we substitute yesterday's obedience for today's leading. You know, we say things to God about this. You know, God, I've obeyed that once. Why do I have to worry about it again? I obeyed you to get to here. I trusted you and you know how hard that was. Why again? Or why next? Or what more? These are the different ways when we use yesterday's obedience to substitute for God's leading today. And when you do this, you turn your obedience by faith into self-righteousness. So what was actually good for you and helped you in following God now is harming you because you're using it against God. And you're beckoning God to accept you for it. You see, yesterday's obedience will always be the foundation and the fuel, but it will never satisfy today's pursuit of God. What you knew of God yesterday at the end of the day and what you experienced in his faithfulness is the good fruit. It's the goodness of God for our lives. But listen, friends, if you try to make that as a deposit on tomorrow's faithfulness, you will find that it's insufficient for your heart and for your soul. You see, those who were taken into exile would have to work through a long history of remembering everything they had experienced. 
Remember why they went into exile in the first place. They had hardened their lives. They were living in rebellion. As a matter of fact, the chronicles, the historical record just before Ezra has this one resonating, repeating line that it continually says, in that day, the people had no clear leader and they did whatever was right in their own sight. That is the defining pattern and characteristic of the Israelites. And God said to this, if you won't listen to me, I will get your attention. I love you enough not to leave you in your rebellion. And so God rose up a perverse nation, the Babylonians, and he came and he conquered and he destroyed the things that didn't matter, like brick and mortar and the things that are temporary of this world so that he could salvage what did matter, the hearts of the people that he had called to himself, and he sent them into exile so he could discipline them. You sit in the corner and count to seven. That's why they were in Babylon. Now, some remembered that because some lived in Jerusalem and in Judah before they went. But after two, three generations, generation being roughly 25 years span of time, there were people who were born here who had never been there. All they knew was this life. And you know, and that's all you know. It's not so bad, especially when you're called to give it up to go for something you don't know. This is what we're facing, friends. This is what we're reading about. And when they were taken into exile, they would have to work through this long history of remembering everything that they experienced. Well, God, what about last time? Well, why why would you take us back? Remember how, how bad we were? Why would you take us back to that? Well, why did we have to leave in the first place, some people would ask. If you were going to just discipline us, why didn't you just get it taken care of right there and get on with it, whatever it was that you were going to do? Think about it this way, friends, how hard it can be to trust God when you failed, when you've tasted defeat in your spiritual life, when the bitterness of it has been the prevailing sensation for you. And then... Then what you have managed to put back together in some semblance of security or stability or some measure of life to push all that in and to walk right back into the place of failure and defeat. Think about this for a moment. Would you have had the faith to walk back into that failure and defeat? Trusting that God would provide for you again? This is no small matter of the people who are recorded on this list. They're not walking back to happy days. You see, some of us struggle with trusting God as he calls us to new places. And some struggle because we remember the places we've been all too well. Failure, defeat, pain, everything that accompanied it. Why does God take us back to these places? To restore, or excuse me, to reconcile relationships? He takes us back to restore trust, to engage conversations, to finish what was left undone. You see, these are the reasons that some people struggled with trusting God as he called. Others struggled with God because his commands, they just simply don't agree or understand. They've they've not yet come to a place where they understand the goodness of God and trust it to the extent that they'll receive his word and say yes. 
So for some, it may feel like a leap into the unknown, while others would say it's but a small step for us. Let's get on the road. But every time God commands and calls, it's for this one reason. Because there is a glory that is new that He wants to bring through your life. That's the reason God calls us to faith. His glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Let me... um, Let me take you back into the day for just a moment. I hope you're not offended by this. But there was a guy by the name of Andre Crouch who in the late 70s and 80s used to, became very popular in the worship scene and it was really kind of pre-contemporary worship days and everybody did the same thing so this seemed really kind of out there. But he wrote a song called Through It All that was a very big hit. And there's three phrases that form a line in this song that I think are very fitting for us today. And I want you to listen to these. He says this, If I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I wouldn't know what faith in God could do. You know, you begin to look at your problems that way, it changes the way you look at them, doesn't it? Why? Because you don't look at your problems in light of you. You look at your problems in light of the one for whom you're living. And that's what that line reminds us of. You see, there's no question. Some people in this list, they got up as quickly as they could because there was a bedrock confidence. For whatever reason, there was a bedrock confidence in what God was doing. You know, some of it might have been ignorant bliss. They don't have a clue. They don't really care. They're just always first. Let's go. Let's go, you know, and whatever. And then you tell them what you're going to do later. They're just ready to go. They had what seemed to be a bedrock confidence. And then there were these other people who were kicking and screaming. They, you, you know, you had to cut the rope that they had tied themselves to an anchor. They wanted to go, but man, every conceivable fear was rising within them. And it felt like they were going, but they, their faith was but a frayed thread that could break at any instant. You have a great diversity of people, but listen, of both types of people in faith. Those who had a bedrock confidence and those who had a frayed strand or thread that they were hanging on by. Do you know of all of those people and everyone in between who found God faithful? All of them. You know why? Because God's faithfulness does not hinge on the strength or the amount or even the feeling of your faith. The faithfulness of God is always because God is faithful. It's determined by his character and by his nature. Weak and strong faith are still faith. And obedience that is hung on the weakest faith still finds the same faithfulness. Listen, friends, when you came in the room today, some of you may have thought you are on your last leg. You're trying to hang on to something and you're wondering if you're going to make it. And listen, it's okay for you If you're a Christian and you've repented of your sins and you know that God has saved you through Jesus Christ, you can let go. 
Because God still got you. He won't let go. Obedience is always a challenge in pursuing God because it requires faith from the first moment to the very last breath. The Christian life is one that is lived by faith. Hebrews 11 tells us what? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. When God commands, when God calls, let his past faithfulness fuel you to follow him to greater glory by faith as you pursue him. The second challenge will not only the first be in obedience to God, the second will be this, a reaction from anxiety-induced and fear-drivenness. A reaction from anxiety-induction or induced and fear-drivenness. You know, those born in exile could have easily said, no, we've had enough, we're not going to mess this up. We had to start over once. I don't want to start over again. And those exiled could have easily defaulted to the glory days or, or refused simply to return to the trauma. It's too much. And I, I argue for us today that both of these are reactions of fear and anxiety that default to what I would call a perceived security or a perceived comfort instead of a faith-driven following of the unknown or the predetermined future because of a past memory because of a past memory. And might I just say this, because in a moment I'm going to ask, why does God lead us back to these places? If it is a past memory that still has hurt in it, it's not completely healed. And God's not a half healer. He's not a partial healer. He's not a mostly all healer. He's the perfect redeemer. You see, there are two things that can really catch us in this past successes can be our greatest hindrance to obedience when we allow those past successes and as I mentioned use them to beckon upon God to deny any need for future faith but past failures can also be a great hindrance when we allow those failures and and even the trauma that we experienced in them to cause us to rationalize and forsake our own faith It's interesting, successes and failures of the past can both deceive us to lead us to the same place outside of God's will. And no one would say, you know, I want to live in fear. That's where I love to live. I've never heard someone tell me, you know, pastor, my anxiety comforts me. You know, that we don't hear these things. Why? Because it's not true, right? But we will allow them to fuel some of the most deceiving rationales within us. We are so quick to let them both determine direction for our life. Fear always defaults to the known over the unknown, even when what is known is not desirable. And anxiety seeks to avoid any threat, even when what is is less desirable than what might be. Because what is, is perceived as manageable. I think I'm getting my grip on it now, we say. And friends, fear and anxiety both can never be managed. You will not manage them. They must be surrendered. They must be crucified. They must be killed. 
This is what the scriptures teach to us. That's why we are instructed in the New Testament, cast all your cares in whatever form they manifest themselves. Cast them upon the Lord because He cares for you. You can give Him all of your fear. You can give Him all of your anxiety and He will give to you His peace. That seems like a pretty good transaction to me, does it not? Every time. God is leading some of you today to a place where you've never been. To do what you've never done. And you're going, you know God, I've just kind of reached the point in my life where I'm not sure I want to do that. Good. The issue though is God didn't ask you if you wanted to. He's leading you there. But let me ask you this. What's your problem? I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not even trying to be caustic in this. I'm asking you genuinely, what's your problem? What is it that is causing you to hesitate? What is it that is rationalizing in your mind and in your heart why this probably isn't what God has for you or doesn't want for you or why you don't want it and God will be okay with you not following him there? You see, the clarity comes through God's call to you and as he affirms it and confirms it in different ways. But once you know, why do you keep offering him some get out of jail for free card as if you can use it for get out of God's will free you see in the unknown God is calling us because in that midst he becomes the one most familiar to us and in the unknown he's calling us because he's the one that becomes most hopeful for us God if you don't come through nothing is going to work out that's exactly where he wants us to be in the unknown, God is the one that, that's most trusted by us because the, the what feels frail and fleeting in our knowledge of God, and we start committing, God, I'm going to start studying the Bible six hours a day because I all of a sudden am in a situation where I've got to know a lot more about you. And, and you begin to realize what you know and what God reveals to you is sufficient for you. But what God is wanting you to do is turn your whole being wholly into Him. In the unknown, God becomes most precious for us and that's what he wants to occupy in our life. You see, in the unknown, faith begins to cling to God with greater fervency and draw from him in greater measure. Don't conjure up the faith that you want to put in God. You'll use that as a good work. Surrender in increasing measure and let God fill you up with the faith that he wants to empower you with. And you'll not only learn more about who he is, you'll begin to experience more of his power and his goodness and his grace in every aspect of your life because of it. This is what God wants to do, what he wants to provide. And this is what your heart most longs for, friend. When your heart experiences its greatest moment of need, that's when God will show his greatest faithfulness. Every time. If you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I will disappoint you. I'll throw you a nugget to get you by. But until you let it all go, and give it all to him, you won't find that he is sufficient for all of it. You'll only know God's greater faithfulness for new glory when you confront the false security of fears and the false narratives and lies of anxiety to trust him and follow. The third challenge 
is one of chaos and confusion from the crowd. Maybe, maybe we're most familiar with this one today. I mean, there was a considerable variety of people in the group returning, as we've already seen, over 43,000 people. No way everyone knew everybody. There were a lot of people that were only casual acquaintances and some that were completely unknowns among the self. But the journey itself would demand a dependence upon the people People that were little known, people that were completely unknown, but they had to trust one another because once they arrived, and listen to me, we don't know anything about the journey. We just know God called, they went, and they arrived. It's like we are given that. We don't see all the struggles and challenges and the relationships and the schisms that arose in the way, but we do know this. When they got there, they're going to need one another because a lot of chaos and confusion had arisen. So when the crowd mounts and diversity grows, it can really cause us to lose our place very quick. This is what I would call social media-induced anxiety and depression. We can be in the most secure, stable place of our life and in our home and, and with no immediate threat and our nose dug into our electronic device scrolling through news feeds and all of a sudden from the depths of our bowels, anxiety and fear begins to rise and overwhelm. Like, it's a social phenomena at this point. And when this kind of chaos and confusion from the crowd arises, the common question to ask is, where do I find my place? So often we hear it this way, why do I look like this person? Well, you just get another filter, you'll look exactly like them. Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? You know, where do I find my place? And, and, and the immediate response to that, do I vie for status? Or do I serve to make a place for others? What do I mean by that? Well, friends, first of all, the less secure and anchored your identity and security is in Jesus Christ, the more pressing and overwhelming this question will always be for you. You've got to settle that first. We long for and we demand a feeling. But you know what Jesus gives us? He gives us a truth. And the truth is that we are made alive unto God through Jesus Christ. That means we are loved far more than we could ever imagine. We are accepted without regret. God's not sorry he brought you into his family. And he doesn't have any lingering, oh, I just wish they could get rid of this little nuance or whatever. God doesn't have any of that. We can be stable and secure in our acceptance because of Jesus Christ. That's a done deal. That's a truth for us to believe, not a feeling for us to run after. But when God stirs your heart to follow, Never reduce your place to one of insignificance, whether it's in the church and the role that God has for you here, or if it's what he wants to do through you out in the world as a follower of Jesus Christ. Never reduce it to a place of insignificance and never default to only serve or worry about yourself. Listen, you can't take care of yourself if it all goes to pot anyway. You can try. But your resources will run out. God's will not. You see, God uses every person differently, but he uses every person. And he gets glory through every life that is surrendered to him. And so when you ask, where do I fit? Never, fall, or never default to vying for position or prominence. Always default to serving God with your whole being. God, I'm going to spend all of me for all of you. Why? It's the model of Jesus Christ. 
We're not just trying to be like him because we are found in him before God. We can live like him. That's what the Spirit of God empowers us to do. And Mark 10, 45 says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When the whole world is creating chaos and confusion for you, you find that one place that you can serve to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And you go all in. And God will prove to be all sufficient for you. Serving is not just the activity we do to impress God. It is the practice whereby we willingly make God known through our life and bring glory to him. Listen, for the Christian, serving is the way. It is the way of our posture, a humble heart. Serving is the way. It is the way of our pattern of life, the activity and the practices and the disciplines that we give ourselves to, to be a blessing because we are a blessed people. And when we bless others, we do it because of the conviction and the reality that God has blessed us. And serving is the way of our path, our direction in life. Wherever God leads us, it's going to be through the path of serving his name. And this is how we pursue God to overcome the challenge of the crowd that brings confusion and chaos. Fourthly, partial participation. Partial participation. Even in pursuing God, we may try to control our circumstances and hold back areas of our life from him. You see, so often we try to practice our spiritual life like we do everything else. We want to be only as invested as is absolutely necessary for maximizing our return. Going all in doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. We need to diversify our investments, right? But God calls us to go all in, friends. And Jesus says the sure way to know where your heart is truly rested is not to consider your feelings. That's a deceptive message today. Rather, the one way to know where your heart is truly rested is to look at where your finances are invested. Where your treasure is, Matthew 6, 21 says, there your heart will be also. You see, when they got there, it says the people gave a free will offering to the Lord. And here's, here's a qualification of that free will offering that so many people overlook in scriptural teaching. It says, as they were able to do. As they were able to do. God's not putting a demand on you that you can't comply with. He's wanting to see how full of him you've become and fully surrendered to him in every way. You see, financial investment nurtures fervent prayerfulness and spiritual hunger like nothing else can. Money creates a false sense of security and provision in this life. That's why Jesus warns us against the love of money because it can be so dangerous and so damning to the way we think about our life. When we have it, we believe we can have anything that we can acquire through it. But God tells us that's not true. Rather, when we have him by faith, he says, you have all you need and you have nothing to fear. It's interesting that element of fear that we lose when we give God all when when God is all we have and we find that we have all we need and have nothing to fear because in my 30 almost 33 years of pastoral ministry here's one characteristic that I've never seen countered that's always held true that people share with me about their money and 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 the things that they go through and the more their money rises the more fear and anxiousness about that money and their care of it rises with it. 
But the more people have of God, regardless of whether they have money or not, the lower their worry about their money goes because that's God's. And what he wants to do with it, he can do with it. And so I give my whole to him. He takes care of it. I have all I need. And I'm going to steward this the way he directs me to steward it. And then I don't have to worry about it. He's taking care of it. When your heart and your treasure are aligned, it produces a spiritual response of faith in God. Faith leads us not to look at our money to consider our giving, but to look at our whole life. And not to ask, do I have anything or how much can I give to God? But rather to look at our life and go, this is the life God has given me. What would be an appropriate amount to give to him to represent what he has done for me? You see, friends, when you trust God to obey him in your finances, you transform your spiritual life like never before. Faith demands that we deny partial participation for whole life obedience. Because partial participation will never produce the full satisfaction that we desire from God. You will never know God's greater faithfulness nor his all-satisfying goodness when you only make small parts of your heart available. God can only fill up what you will open up. But if you'll open it, He will overflow it. God calls people to follow him by faith that we might see his faithfulness in new ways for new glory. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. And I want to close with this one statement because this is such a dangerous twist that we can be made here. Friends, God is worthy of your faith. However he calls and whatever he commands. He's worthy of all your obedience. And when you meet the challenges with faith to pursue God. There you'll find God's greater faithfulness. But be careful. For greater faithfulness for new glory is not what you do for God. But it is what, be, what, becomes, uh, uh, what comes to us as we pursue God by faith. He is the one that demonstrates his greater faithfulness for his glory when we surrender to him. Let's pray.